Welcome, everybody. This is Omar Serrato with uh, episode 41 of the Tilted Lawyer podcast. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about Chad Doerman, um, a resident of Claremont County, Ohio. Um, he allegedly, um, although he confessed and pled not guilty to it, um, is responsible for the deaths of his three young sons. It is a, a horrific crime, probably one of the worst that we've ever heard, but we're going to spend some time talking about it. If you're sensitive in any way to this subject matter, if you have young ones in the car, use your discretion because we're going to get into some sensitive topics that could be very upsetting. At any rate, uh, let's get started. What's up, everybody? I'm Omar Serrato, experienced and practicing attorney, fierce litigator, and unofficial commentator on the most popular legal issues of the day. I'm the host of the Tilted Lawyer podcast, joined by Eliana Colon Rosa and the TLP crew, where we break down the human aspects of law that everybody wants to talk about. I've been a practicing attorney for many years, but nothing in this show is or should be taken as legal advice. We're not going to pull any punches. We might even get a little bit dirty, but we want you to join us anyway. Right, second time is a charm. Um, this evening, is it evening? It's 3.30. It's 3.30 on a Friday afternoon. Afternoon, um, yeah. <laughs> I am joined by my co-host, Ileana Clone Rosa, who is still very, very pregnant. And um, yeah. she's got one bacon in the oven, and she's joining us remotely. I'm also joined um, on the show by a new member of the team, Kashida Desai, who is a little bit shy. And so she didn't want to be on camera, so she's going to be this mysterious a disembodied voice that you may hear from time to time to chime in about various things that she's interested in or things that she has to say. But uh, before we get too far, too deeply into that, uh, Chad Doerman, this was the story that I have been requested to do more than any other topic within the last week and a half. Um, okay. I've been gotten, I've gotten so many uh, messages about requested to do this story. And to be honest with you, I really didn't want to cover it because it's pretty cut and dry. It's a, it is a murder case. It is a story of this dad, uh, Chad Doerman. He lived in Claremont County, Ohio. Um, prior to everything that had happened, he didn't really have a criminal record. I think he had gotten arrested for being unruly in public, getting into a public fight, maybe whatever. Who doesn't have something like that on the record? Um, I don't, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, apart from a, a minor traffic citation, he had some domestic violence charges uh, from over a decade ago, but he didn't have any anything significant that would have put off any red flags that he would be capable of what it is that he just did. Um, however, uh, there were signs that he had anger management issues. There was evidence witnessed by um, his neighbors that he was mistreating his family um, committing acts of domestic violence, uh, verbally belittling his wife and his children, um, and just being a general, generally angry person. I don't have too many of the specifics on that, and not a lot of it has come out other than the few interviews that have um, I've come across from some of the neighbors where they said that, yeah, the guy was a little bit off. And, you know, we tried to stay out of it. We didn't think that it was going to escalate into what it escalated into, but yet here we are. And, you know, it's not quite history yet, but now we have a murder case on our hands. So, um, I don't know a whole, there's not a whole lot that's been released so far. Um, but the timeline leading up to the events, it's undisputed. Well, obviously it's disputed because he's pled not guilty, but the prosecution has said that he premeditated these events. And if you haven't 
heard. Um, and it's a little funny because he offered a full-on confession to these charges, to these murder charges at first, and then he gets up to the arraignment and he full-on uh, pleads not guilty. And the question that I had from my new staff member, Kashida, was, well, why would he do that? Um, in my opinion, was probably because, well, what else does he have to lose? They're going for the, the death penalty no matter what in this case. But to give you an idea of what he did, he, according to the prosecution, premeditated the murder of his children, ages three, four, and seven. seven. All of them boys, he had been planning this for several months. And the way that he executed his plan was nothing short of monstrous evil personified the most horrific of circumstances if you put this on a movie on the big screen or in a tv miniseries it would be the talk of all of the television critic pundits for weeks as shocking television but this was real life mm-hmm. what what we know that he did is that he lined his sons up and he shot them all execution style with a rifle he started with the four-year-old, uh, shot him dead in the head, according to what I've been able to find. His seven-year-old, the most able-bodied of the three, uh, tried to get away and run off to a nearby field that was behind the house. And from what I can gather, he took his rifle, he hunted down his son, shot him in the back, and as he was laying there, wounded and unable to move, he put a bullet in his head execution style and then the wife uh, the victim of all of his domestic violence in his verbal tirades his verbal assaults tried with all she had to save her young three-year-old son until he ripped his son out of her arms and put a bullet in his head while shooting her in the hand as she tried to save her son with whatever she could um luckily and mercifully, or not mercifully, depending on how you view it, uh, she remains alive and injured with minor injuries to her hand. Um, there was a 14-year-old daughter that she had in a prior relationship, the stepdaughter of this man, Chad Doerman, who ran screaming down the streets to anybody within earshot that he was killing everybody in the house. She managed to get away unharmed. That is the framework for the case that we're working on right now. Um, after the murders, there was 911 calls um, that were placed from multiple people. I'm not sure all of the 911 calls that are out, but I know for sure that there was one placed by the neighbor. There was one placed by, um, I believe it was the 14-year-old little girl. I'm not sure if the wife placed a 911 call or not. We're going to go through some of the, the, the articles that are out there today and figure some of it out. Um, there's body camera footage that was released from law enforcement that shows the moment that Chad Doerman was arrested. So after he committed the acts that I've just described, um, he was sitting peacefully on the porch, seemingly without a care in the world, and he um, surrendered himself to police, didn't put up any fights, made sure that they knew that he wasn't trying to hurt them or do anything, and... It, if you've seen the body cam footage, maybe we'll play some of that um, on, on later on in the show. But um, 
there's the, the footage that's been released, there's little black boxes covering the dead bodies of his sons that are laying strewn about the yard um, amidst their toys, bikes, things, you know, they're young boys. And he's just sitting there peering out at uh, the dead bodies of his children, waiting for the police to get there, and then he's arrested. And there is a moment, um, I mean, obviously they're very rough with him. They knew that he, there was gunshots. They knew that there was um, injured people. So they approached him with guns drawn, ordering him very vigorously to get on the ground, and they arrested him. Um, at one point, they're walking him back to the police car, and he starts make, making mention of if he if somebody could get something out of his wallet, and the cop the cop is like, just shut up, just shut up. I don't want to hear it. You have the right to remain silent, and you should exercise it. And you could tell that the officers on the scene were very physically affected by what was happening um, or by the scene itself. Um, it was horrific. It, as far as these kinds of cases goes, I, I, I cannot remember a more horrific sequence of events um, than what I've just described here at the beginning of the show. Um, what did you think, Ileana, upon hearing about all of that? Reading well, what you read. Reading, yeah. About reading, uh, I mean, of course, that was a gruesome. And uh, I just had a lot of questions, like, what is his mental health? Like, why did he do it? Um just, it's just so many questions. Uh, like the articles that I have read, they don't give uh, too much information other than that what you already described that happened, but it, they don't go into detail about his background. Like what did he used to do for a living? Did, what he Was he maybe in the military and had some um, PTSD? Um, like was... Well, we're going to talk about some of that. We're going to answer some of those questions. As a matter of fact, maybe we should maybe we should just jump into uh, some of the information out there that mm -hmm. uh, has been released about him. So, um, the documents that were released Monday, according to the Cincinnati um, Inquirer, um, they they highlight how he had planned to kill his sons for months before mm -hmm. they were shot at their home on Thursday. Thursday, and this article was dated back on June twentieth. Um, he's been charged with aggravated murder of his sons, three, four, and seven. The Claremont County Sheriff's Office said it received multiple 911 calls on Thursday just after 4 p.m. One caller screamed that her babies had been shot. That must have been the mother, I'd assume, right? Another caller said that there was a young woman running down the street that was a 14-year-old. Um, just said that her father was killing everyone. Deputies had swarmed the home on the 1900 block of Laurel Lindale Road in Monroe Township and found the three boys in the front yard, and prosecutors said that Dorman lined them all up, and executed them with a rifle. When one of the boys tried to flee, he hunted him down, brought him back to the house, and killed him. Now, I, I'm going to say this, that because it's not a secret that the prosecution has made this a death penalty case, they vowed that they're going to get this guy executed uh, for committing these atrocities. But um, because of that, because of the pendency of the death penalty case, or because that's what's at stake, they haven't been able to release a whole lot of information. So what we have is just the bare basics of, of, of what we know. It appears that there's going to be a trial because the guy decided to um, plead not guilty to the charges. And the reasons why he did that, I guess because 
either a, you know, one reason might be he just has nothing to lose. Another reason why is because, well, I mean, this is a national case and maybe he wants the attention. Um, the third reason is because there's not a plea deal on the horizon where the prosecution is going to be like, you know what, plead guilty. And then we'll take death penalty off the table. That's what I thought. <laughs> if any case warranted the death penalty here, it would be one involving these facts. Mm-hmm. Kashida, I have just um, described one of the most horrific crime scenes um, over the last 50 years in American history. What are your thoughts about what I just described in terms of your opinions about what I just read? Um, my first thought would be just thinking about the main thing that came up was he was planning this for months and just the reasoning behind it and his mental health prior to the killings. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about mental health then. Is there any mental health condition that would um, give rise to some sympathy for Chad Dorman? I mean, just looking at previous cases similar to his, like you would think what would make him do something like this. That's one hell of a question. I don't have an answer to that. Eliana, what do you think? What would make a guy do such a thing? No, I have to agree with her. I think uh, there's been many cases where, uh, I mean, I, I can't really tell you the specific mental health issues. Um, one of the first things that comes to my mind is some sort of PTSD. Um, sometimes we see this in uh, women with postpartum, not specifically with a rifle, but just killing uh, their children like and planning uh, ahead. Um, but I saw a case like that. Remember, remember the one that we did? Or I don't know mm-hmm. if you, if we did. I, I think I don't remember if we did it or not. But I did a video on it. It was that one lady that the Connecticut lady that had slaughtered her children as her husband had went out to go get food. You remember that There's case? Some, I forget that lady. I don't, I don't think we did it together, but I have read we many about it for sure. Yeah, um, I, I think I did that one on my own. But I think that that was. Exactly what you described, postpartum depression. Um, I don't know if that's the case with this guy. Um, here's some of the more details. So footage from the body-worn cameras of two deputies, have been they've been released, and that's, we talked about that. It shows the deputies approaching Dorman while he sat on a step outside of his house. The bodies of the boys were scattered in front of him in the grass. A rifle is on the ground next to him. Um, a deputy approached Dorman and pulled him down to his stomach, handcuffs him. A dog is barking in the background, and then he's telling the officer, I'm not going to hurt anybody. He just murdered his children. Um, as the deputy's walking him to a cruiser, Dorman asks him to take his wallet out of his back pocket. And then the deputy replies, shut up, dude. You have the right to remain silent. Effing use it, is what he said. Um, and, and if you watch that video, you can tell that the officer was restraining himself because if you have children and, well, Atlanta, you're about to give birth. I mean, imagine. It's... You don't want to imagine it, but it, if, if when you see it, it's something about seeing dead, innocent children that would, if, if there's any semblance of something that's going to set somebody off, that would be the one thing that I could think I of. Don't, 
that would cause you to lose composure in that moment and maybe take that guy out to the back of a field, one of those fields, and just say, oh, I don't know, it was an accident. Um, he was shooting, it was, it was all self-defense, and I don't think that anybody would look twice and saying, yeah, it's definitely self-defense. He deserved what he got. No, I don't even uh, think you need to have children to uh, feel like that. I mean, uh, that position of the officer, um, having to deal with him, seeing what ju had just happened, and then the guy is just asking for his wallet. I think anybody will be in the same uh, position as the officer. Like, dude, just like, let me just restrain myself because I'm just about to do something to you. I mean, who cares about your wallet? Uh, well, think about what's happening physiologically with your body in that moment. You have all mm -hmm. of this adrenaline coursing mm -hmm. through your veins. And, you know, it's there's an immediate fight or flight response. And officers tend to be fighters. Mm -hmm. and your immediate reaction to that is to uh, pummel that guy because he's responsible. Oh, yeah. You take a job and you're, you're, you're paid to protect and serve. And here's three dead kids strewn about a, a yard with all of their toys scattered about in the front yard. And here's the guy that did it. How could you not, your first response not be to uh, beat that guy to a bloody pulp. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so forgive that guy for taking uh, liberties with his language in, in that moment. Um, for himself, very good. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess they talk about his past and that's kind of the biggest, the mm -hmm. biggest mystery. Who is Chow Doberman? Other than traffic citations and one decade old domestic violence charge. Um, he had no serious criminal offenses. Uh, the domestic violence charge stems from him allegedly choking his father in 2010, uh, the case was ultimately dismissed, apparently after the alleged victim identified as Keith Dorman. His dad failed to appear as a prosecution witness, and sometimes that happens. Um, the community has come together. They were hosting prayer events uh, hosted by New Richmond area char churches over the weekend. Um, they had planned a third for June 25th. The residents are understandably shaken. Uh, this was the second family shooting in their community. Uh, they were talking about how he mentions, well, he's facing the death penalty. Prosecutors in this article said they weren't uh, clear on whether they're intending to seek it or not, but they've since come out and said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah we're going to get this guy. So that's where we're at with him. Um, so, again, there's not a whole lot, but listen to some of what the, the um, neighbors were saying about it. I don't know if, uh, so he was in court on Friday. I believe it would have been the 22nd or June 22nd, whatever that Friday would have been. Um, the judge ordered him to be held without bail. He was awaiting a pretrial hearing. They scheduled that for July 5th. That's coming up. Uh, he was indicted on 21 counts after confessing to executing his sons and obviously later recanting and pleading not guilty. Um, the prosecution identifies additional details that took place in his home. Um, and here's what they said. <clears throat> the massacre started inside the family home where he shot his four-year-old son in the head twice. He then walked outside and shot the seven-year-old as the boy tried to run away according to the prosecutor. The boy was injured after being shot from behind, uh, and then he walked up to him and shot him twice in the head from a short distance. Norman then ripped out, ripped the third 
ripped the three-year-old from his mother's arms and shot him in the head. Um, and after all of that, the prosecutor says that his goal is to have this man executed. And he didn't mince words. It wasn't like, oh, maybe it's up in the air. Maybe uh, we'll pursue the death penalty. It's, it's inconclusive. No, they said, we're going to execute this guy. And he goes on to say, I can only imagine the terror these little boys felt and experienced as their father, their protector, was murdering them. Unfortunately, their mother saw this, and you can imagine the immense trauma and terror that she experienced, and we will do the utmost in my office to see this defendant never sees the light of day again. So, I once wrote a paper in law school, and it was geared towards the Eighth Amendment that dealt with uh, cruel and unusual punishment. I argued for an expansion of the death penalty to deal with these specifically heinous and uh, horrendous crimes, and this would fit the bill, as in maybe death is too good for this guy. Perhaps uh, death by electrocution might be too kind of a death to deal with somebody like that. Perhaps the gas, the, the, the gas chamber... Um, where death is usually over within the course of one to five minutes is too kind of a way to pass for him. Could it be possible that maybe we start bringing back medieval tortures for some of these killers as a possible deterrent against such conduct? And there's all kinds of philosophical discussions to be had based off of that subject matter. And we had those in law school. And um, But I was steadfast in my belief that not only should we bring back those things in certain types of cases, but we should extend the death penalty to include violent rapists, um, violent uh, child molesters, and those kinds of people. What do you think? What was your opinion? Okay, if I asked you that question about your opinions about the Eighth Amendment, what would your opinion have been before learning about this case, and what would you your argument now be knowing that this case exists? Um, I have to say that I have always uh, had a, kind of like a very similar perspective or I guess idea or opinion about uh, the death penalty as you. Um, I think there's certain cases where death is just an easy way out and I would have liked for people just to suffer and staying in jail. I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if it is one of the worst jails in the United States, still they live, they live uh, pretty comfortable uh, compared to a lot of people that are out um, of jail. So sometimes, I mean, not simply, but I think there should be another type of punishment. And I agree, it should be. What would the punishment like, be? What would you do? You oh, get to pick it. Go ahead. Any punishment you can think of. What is it going to be? Some sort of uh, long-term torture. <laughs> okay, you got to be specific, though. You're really angry. You're very vociferously angry at this guy. And you get to pick to be the author of the punishment. What are you going to decide? I will say I will start by, I don't know, uh, cutting off some fingers little by little. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then just, like, no anesthesia. And then another day, uh, like... I would probably give the same death that he gave to his kids. Oh, that seems too quick. That seems too quick. I don't think he deserves to be executed that way. He just lights out in a split second? Mm -mm. Depending on where you're shot. <laughs> oh, so you're thinking more like Pulp Fiction style. Pulp Fiction style, where, um, do you even know what that movie is? 
I've heard of it, but okay, yeah. Eliana, do you know what the movie is? I've heard of it, but you guys I are both fired. What? <laughs> I don't think it's from my time, um, and if it is, it's probably some sort of. It was in 1994. You're not that much older than me. It was definitely in your time. Um, I'm just gonna say there. There's this scene. I'm not going to play it for the show, but it's a scene that involves a violent sexual assault. And one of the guys escapes, Bruce Willis. And then he's going to um, exit and run to safety, but instead he sets his sights on the person that's sexually assaulting his mortal enemy. And so he grabs, at first it was a shotgun, and then he grabs, I think it was a baseball bat, and then he's like, oh, wait a minute. There's a there's a freaking sword right here. So he takes the sword and then he walks back in and he sneaks into the place and then he slashes um, one of the guys. And then um, the guy is actively sexually assaulting um, Ving Rhames, the actor. And um, as he's doing that, the officer that's doing it turns back and then he looks at his gun. He looks down at Bruce Willis and he's holding his, his, his sword and it's like, a, go ahead, pick it up, make a move. And then um, he's questioning whether or not he should. And then Ving Rhames gets up. And then he has his own ideas. And then he says that he's going to bring in his cohorts and we're about to get to work on this officer with a pair of pliers and a blowtorch. And then he says, we're going to, we're about to get medieval on his ass. That's what he said. And so that is the torture that I have in mind. Um, as graphic well, as it was, I think it's appropriate in this particular case. I don't know. What do you think about that? I just looked up the movie. First of all, I wasn't of age to watch that movie at that time. <laughs> but even uh, if I had the opportunity to see it um, after I had the, I guess, appropriate age to see it, it's just one of those movies that, uh, especially, I just read it's Quentin Tarantino. I don't watch any of his movies. <laughs> no, well, you're not I, fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't. What do you think about that? How, how do you think about the Pulp Fiction style of uh, execution. No, I mean, for this that I, I, I think it seems appropriate. <laughs> I understand where they're coming from. You just uh, don't have to be the one uh, to carry it out? What do you mean? Like, like you one? don't want to be the executioner. You just want to pass the sentence. You don't want to swing the sword. Oh, I don't know. Never really thought about that. Like, uh, whenever we're I think about We're getting way too far out in the weeds on this particular subject about <laughs> how we're going to execute Chad Doberman. <laughs> Um, appropriate, nonetheless. I think, I think it's kind of like that one movie um, where you have, if you have one day to do whatever you want, what is it called? Um, where murder, Groundhog Day? No, where murder is. Um, oh, I know what you're talking about. I think I know what you're talking about. Was it like a Black Mirror episode or something? No, it's, it's a movie. It's, it's where if you have one free day... To do whatever you want without consequence. Oh, but let's let's assume that there's no consequence. You can do whatever you want to Chad Dorman. We're just gonna shut the doors. You don't even have to tell us what you did. Whatever whatever oh, you're going to do will I be done. I remember the movie name now. It's called Purge. I'm not sure if I've seen Purge. I think I might have started to watch it and then I just didn't because I did something else. Okay, well in that movie, it's allowed to have one. Day, no rules. Free of consequence. Free of consequence. Whether the person is evil, didn't do anything bad or not, you're allowed to kill anybody. 
Well, that seems like a <laughs> not what we're talking about. <laughs> not what we're talking about, but I'm just saying if, if you as a person had an option to do that to your worst enemy and your enemy being this guy who created, who made this heinous crime, I mean, you would do the worst things possible to him. Well, if, yeah, if there was a guy that you had that envision for, I would I would save it for yeah, Chad Dorman. Yeah, especially if, if you knew yeah. that he did this crime to his own. Have you seen his mugshot? Uh, yeah, I, I It's not nice. It's a, it's a anger-inducing, mm-hmm. to say the least. Um, getting back to this, uh, when the prosecutor made his declaration that uh, he's going to... I just want to make sure I didn't miss anything over here. Oh, so Bennett, there was, um, so in court, the judge asked Doerman if he understood all of the charges against him. And then he calmly answers, yes, your honor, I do. Bennett said, legally speaking, a person can commit aggravated murder in multiple ways against the same victim. And each one is a different charge, potentially leading to a conviction in the act of kidnapping a person, you killed someone, and then you kidnapped a person to kill them, and then that person is under 13. That's three ways you can get aggravated murder. He said three different charges of aggravated murder for each of the three children added up to nine charges, though Bennett said Dorman could only be sentenced for one per child. And it doesn't matter because each one of those charges are going to carry life, mm-hmm. um, and they're not going for life. They're going for death. And so... Who cares about any of that? He's charged with 21 different counts of stuff. Um, what do they add up to? A whole lot where he's never going to see the light of day, uh, no matter what. Um, but that's what he's facing. In addition to that, um, let's see if I could find more. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the timeline, which is most interesting. So, <clears throat> The search for the missing Titanic submersible ends as... What was that? Jesus. <laughs> uh, I thought that was you, Ileana. I was like, no, I'm why here. did you get so excited all of a sudden? <laughs> Started talking about the Titanic. Okay, so this is from uh, the, uh, I guess it's the uh, New Zealand Herald. Uh, Chad Dorman, uh, he confessed to authorities that he killed his sons, that he'd been planning it for months. So what's, what I'm most interested in is the, you know, I watch, I can't tell you how many police interrogation videos I've watched in the last 10 years, but it's probably something over a thousand. I'm really fascinated to see when that footage comes out, what he specifically told the cops um, and how his defense attorneys are going to try to somehow convince a jury that, oh, by the way, this this was a false confession. You know, yeah. I'd imagine they're going to probably say, well, the the police were being really brutal with him and they were bullying him and they bullied him into this confession. And then they're going to see the uh, body cam footage where he's sitting there. Um, I'm just I'm just so curious about what kind of defense he's going to try to put up. Um, but that interrogation footage is coming out at some point. Um, so he's 32 years old. He confessed to planning and carrying out the deaths for several months. He admitted to lining them up before executing them with a rifle. Um, and they go in more about the accusations. Uh, the Claremont County's chief prosecutor of municipal court, David Gast, he said during Doerman's arraignment on Friday that one of the boys tried to flee. That's been well documented. They set his bail at $20 million. You can't really set it any higher than that. <clears throat> 
And in a case like that, I wonder why they just, just say, don't say uh, no bail at all. Because if he's facing death, that's pretty much you're the ultimate flight risk. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to argue that he's got significant ties to the community, that he's got a job and he doesn't want to lose his job. Just say no bail. Just say what you mean. Just say what you mean. Um, so they get into that. The prosecutor describes these killings as the worst crime he'd ever seen. I got to tell you, Eliana, I've seen this case covered on a different, a, a couple of different channels, a couple okay. of different podcasts, these true crime podcasts, which admittedly we are lumped into, but the way that they cover this is, uh, it angers me so much that we talk about this case the way that we do. And it got me to thinking about what is the utility of talking about this case? Like, why are people so quick to want to discuss the morbid, the obscene, um, evil? What is our fascination with it? And what is the, what, what, what utility does it serve us as human beings? Cause in all honesty, I had no desire to cover this case whatsoever. I had an interest in it in that, you know, it's something that happened that I'm aware of, but in terms of discussing it, what do you think I'm going to say? You want me to give my legal analysis? Should this guy get the death penalty? Yes. Would I represent him in court? No. What's his legal defense? It doesn't matter. He's guilty. He's confessed. I mean, all of these things I want to say, do you want me to get into some in-depth legal analysis about what are his rights? He shouldn't have any. He does have rights. They're all uh, enumerated in the Constitution. I don't have to. He, he just has those. These are inalienable rights that he has. And so what is it that we talk about? Do we want to talk about the salaciousness? Do we want to talk about all the morbid details about how his children, um, the seven-year-old particularly, was running for his life and he wasn't fast enough. His little seven-year-old legs weren't fast enough to escape his evil 32-year-old father as he put a bullet in his back and two in, it in the back of his head. Like, what is it that people are looking for out there? I don't know. How do you reconcile having this discussion knowing that the legal analysis is so freaking obvious. Well, the way that I see it, and it's also why I watch so many like murder documentaries and really weird uh, crime documentaries is from the, I guess, psychological perspective and like how to be able to, uh, identify like the red flags um and maybe in the future have somebody like prevent this from happening by either recognizing the red flags and maybe getting out of the relationship or seeking some sort of help um because a lot of these cases i mean i don't know much about the background and mental health of this person but there should have been something in there that I mean, especially when the neighbors say that he was pretty, uh, what is it? Uh, he was abusive, I guess, or aggressive towards the family. Um, what should be done? Like, should we just ignore those uh, incidents because it's the neighbors and we don't want to get in trouble? Or should we call the police and maybe this person could have been arrested before he was able to commit this crime? That's usually what I I focus on whenever I have to like discuss or even just watch a show related to a murder like this, because other than that, I don't care much about the gruesome details of how the children were executed. 
Um, I know people, there's a lot of people that like that part. That's why also a lot of people watch movies. Um, but this very uh, gruesome, I guess, presentation of death. But I'm not interested in that. And at least for me, it's just pointing out those things that maybe people are not used to or haven't heard of that could have helped somebody in the future. Kashida, you are a lay person and we're talking about this case. And this is your first podcast on the out of the gate. And just so everybody knows, she's not an attorney. She's a new staff member with uh, with the Eagle Law Firm and she's joining the show because um, she wanted to participate. But from your perspective, why do we talk about these kinds of cases? What do we get out of it? I think that the media is just entertainment. <laughs> but um, just like what we were talking about before um, regarding the Chris Watts case, um, I don't think there's a real reason why or a reason the public can come up with just as in like um, suicides as well. Like, a lot of people are surprised, like, why people do the things they do. And where was I going with this one? You tell me. You started. (laughs) But I'm just saying, um, it's hard to find a reasoning sometimes, just like in this case. Well, I will say, here's what I came up with. People are so divided on so many things. Mm Mm-hmm. We're divided on the clothes that we wear. We're divided on our political affiliations. We're divided on our religious affiliations. Mm-hmm. And so much of our energy is spent on tearing the other side down. And in these times of mass hysteria in the most gruesome of cases, we find in this pain, a way to find common ground. And it's important for all the things that you said, Eliana, about the red flags and being able to prevent and, you know, those kinds of things, and that's important. But I feel like our being able to acknowledge evil when we come across it, it gives us a sense of what makes us human. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, rather Republican or Democrat, left or right, no matter who you voted for, uh, no matter what your moral compass is, we find unity in our suffering. Not in our jubilation, we find it in our suffering. And what does that say about the human condition? I don't know. I'm not qualified to speak on such things. It just left me pondering about why, why why was everybody so curious for me to talk about this specific case? I mean, my my comments, my opinions were going to be obvious. Execute the guy. So let me let let's uh well let's let's just ask the legal questions. Ileana, this this guy's family, Chad Doerman's family, comes to you and says that you know what, I want you to represent him. He was innocent. He was forcing that confession. People are misinterpreting the body cam for footage. He has mental health issues. He's been schizophrenic from the time he was eight years old, and um, I want you to represent him and prove that he's innocent. He deserves justice. What do you say? I don't know why you keep trying for me to take these cases. <laughs> you know, that I don't have like the defense 
style for criminal cases. Like if I need to handle a criminal case, I'll probably be the prosecutor. I just, I don't think I have found yet a case where I'm like, oh yes, let's go ahead and defend this guy in criminal court. It's just not my, <laughs> I don't know, not in me. <laughs> so I will probably just refer him to somebody else because with me, they're just going to lose <laughs> So, well, by the way, um, Mari says that um, she agrees with you. She says that everybody wants to know the why. Everyone wants to know why that is, um, why things happen like this. And, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of given up on figuring out the why. Mm -hmm. Why do your clients do stupid things? Why do we make poor decisions? Why do we end up in the situations that we're in? Why does uh, a dad, 32 years old, feel the need to execute his uh, three children in such a way that he plans it for months? Why? Do you think in asking that question that you're going to find any logic or reason to it? You're not. You're going to find... Um, no. You're going to have to delve into the uh, darker parts of psychology that deal with uh, abnormal psychology about what would cause a person to do such a thing. And in those abnormal studies, you're not going to find... Um, obvious answers. You're going to find people that present as normal that despite the absence of red flags, and in this case there were red flags, but in the absence of red flags, people do shitty things. Yeah, there's people like that. One of the things that um, also had me um, thinking like why did he do it the way that he, do it, he did it is that he didn't killed the wife he just killed the three male children he didn't do anything to the stepdaughter i don't know if he was planning to do something to the stepdaughter or uh and she was able just to get away um but a lot of these cases uh, usually it's a murder suicide type of a situation but he from what i have read he didn't do anything to the wife and he just sat there like just waiting for the police to come like he must have had some sort of reason why, even if it doesn't make sense, why he just had to kill the boys. Like, are we going back to Lori Vallow? We thought that she that they were demons. Who knows? It could be something like that. Because <laughs> I agree with you. That was my biggest question. Like, why just the kids? Why not the mom? He obviously had opportunity to shoot the mom, and he shot her in the hand. Exactly. And Maybe he I mean, had bad aim. <laughs> maybe he did have bad aim. I don't know. I don't know. It's curious. And I heard that he uh, shot her, not not even in the hand. It was like in the thumb. Mm. But I feel like he had good enough aim to hit a, a moving seven-year-old oh, yeah. from some of a distance. I feel like if he wanted to, he probably could have killed her. Mm -hmm. Yet he didn't. And he wasn't trying to. He, he was once Once he finished off the three-year-old, he was... He didn't go back looking for the 14-year-old. He didn't go back looking for the wife. He sat his ass on the porch and waited for the cops. Yeah, I Was mean, that his plan all along? I don't know. I remember we're going to find out those things. And so if I was to paint to you a horror movie, um, this would be one. And the, the justification that we would come up with for why he would commit such a thing is he was possessed. He was possessed by an evil entity because there's no way that a human being with our human morality and our human thoughts and reasoning would ever hunt down and murder innocent children the way that he did. 
And it's the only explanation. We think of the absurd. We think of uh, the supernatural to explain what happened here. And in that regard, and the way that he did it, it was he ripped the three-year-old out of his mother's arms. Do you remember last week when I was telling you about this story about how I had to dive into the swim pool to save my, my child? And it was like instant. And so she goes waddling off. And of course she jumps into the pool fully clothed. And I'm like, this little asshole, she just jumped into the pool. I'm going to have to go get her. And then I was like, okay, well maybe that's the worst of it. And then she's not going to jump into the middle. And I'm standing like right there over. And of course, what does she do? Lunges off into the deep end of the jacuzzi. It was a jacuzzi. It wasn't like a swim pool, but, um, it was not even a thought. It was like this automatic um, physiological response. It's just like a reflex mm-hmm. that I jump in afterwards and after her fully clothed, she like flailed about for like a couple of times and I pull her out of the pool and she's like, daddy, you saved me. And then, you know, it was a, this thing to, and I was telling you because you're about to have a child and you're going to have this weird um, thing that happens in your brain that you can't control, that you've been programmed to protect your offspring. And so to be able to do the opposite of that in the way that he did it, let alone, okay, imagine that it's not even, imagine it's a child, but then imagine it's your child. How much harder would it be? But Mm -hmm. that's the state of mind that he was in. And we're supposed to make sense of that. Um, My legal analysis on that is, uh, (laughs) you asked me why I always ask you if you would be the one to represent him. Um, well, ask me the same question. I ask myself the same question, and I would tell his family that you can kiss my ass. Call Johnny mm-hmm. Crocker. Call somebody else. Call, uh, I don't know, celebrity defense attorney. I don't give a shit, but I'm not taking your case. Just from what we know, that apparently there was a history of domestic violence, none reported. Um, I'm talking about what the neighbors said about the fights and all and how he mistreated her um the wife the only thing that i can think of is that he wanted to pun- punish her and wa- yeah. make her watch the killings and in those cases usually the person it they just switch and they're not thinking about the children they ju- are just thinking about themselves and revenge and I mean, it doesn't mean that they're right in their mind, but it just happens. And uh, I don't know about, you probably have seen it in a lot of the domestic uh, violence cases where these people, they just get completely blind um, and they go into this rage and they just forget about what is logical and what is right. And uh, they forget about the kids and they just focus on whatever they want to hurt. Um, And it's usually the spouse um and it just unfortunate but it happens well that 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 is certainly in domestic violence cases where parents just want to hurt the other parent as much as they possibly can what could she have possibly done to this guy to uh, deserve Mm -hmm. watching her children be executed i don't know but you're probably right in terms of motive is probably some hatred towards the mom and um, he wanted to punish her by in the in the the most evil way manage it, that he could imagine, and that was it. And exactly. I, I guess I mean that'll do it. That'll do it. I don't know, Kashida. What do you think? No, I agree. Um, 
I think it's just about a lot of anger there and just mm-hmm. about hurting, probably just about hurting her. Not sure what went on between them, but just about revenge or how I much mean, you could hurt her. If I'm guessing for a motive, that would be mm-hmm. the closest thing I could come up with other than he was possessed by a demon. But that's because I've seen those kinds of cases before. And I don't know. It, it hasn't happened a whole lot in my career where I was asked to represent a cold-blooded murderer like that where you're staring in the face of pure evil. And I've told you, and I've mentioned many times in my show by my experiences with it, but it's always an unsettling thing when you're, when you're sitting across from somebody that you sense um, is devoid of a soul. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, I haven't sat across from this guy, but, you know, he had a public, he has representation. Somebody's representing him. Even if they didn't want to representing him, he's entitled to it. And I would even argue that, you know what, Your Honor, I want to be thrown off the case because I can't get along with this guy or I don't believe in this case or whatever. In some cases, the judge might just say, that, well, he's entitled to representation and you're it. So in that case, you might even hope that he decides to represent himself so you just don't have to, which I suspect that this guy is something that he might do. We've yeah. seen those kinds of cases before where you have the worst. Other than this case, there was another uh, case that happened not too long ago where this guy was mentally disturbed. Mm-hmm. He had just joined the Nation of Islam. Um, not Islam itself, not the Muslim religion, but at the offshoot, Nation of Islam, started by Elijah Muhammad and that group. And he was trying to get his wife to convert, and she refused, and then um, he killed her and beat her to a bloody pulp. After shooting her with a shotgun, there was a 911 call on it, and after that, they had a, an autistic child. She was nine years old, and she was nonverbal, and he goes in there and murdered her with a axe and then set her body on fire. And then he tried to, he went after his son. His son was like nine years old and he stabbed his son to the point where his insides were hanging out and he's trying to hold them in. And he tried to light his son on fire. And then the cops got there saving that young boy's life. He lived and the, the building was on fire, and then they go in, and it was this horrific scene. I mean, I don't know what's worse, this case or that, and it doesn't matter. But in that case, the guy represented himself, and he had standby counsel, which I guess if you're a public defender is probably best-case scenario if you're not, if you're not <laughs> wanting to represent this guy. Um, I guess... <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know if you've heard of that case, but it happened not too long ago, back in 2021. The incident occurred back in 2018. Okay. Um, the uh, trial took place in 21 after COVID and all of these things had delayed it for all of these years. Um, the boy has since been adopted by one of the detectives that was working on that case. He's 11 years old now. Actually, I think he might be 12. Um, and in the midst of him representing himself, he cross-examined his son, the guy that he tried to, the, the boy that he tried to murder by stabbing him in the abdomen a couple of times. Um, ah, the guy's name escapes me, but it, 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 was, a, it was a famous case. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, cross, uh, going back to this case, I don't envy the public defender. What is his legal defense? If I were to put together a legal defense for him, it would have to be something like he was obviously mentally disturbed. Mm-hmm. He's probably been mentally ill for many years and has gone untreated. Um, he doesn't believe that he committed the murders because he doesn't remember doing it because he was out of his body when he did it. Mm. Uh, maybe split personality defense. We've seen that um, tried in almost every single time it fails. Um, or because he thought that his children were demons, he didn't have the requisite intent to murder. It was imperfect self-defense, and so therefore reduction of charges from first-degree murder to um, manslaughter, which is not going to work because he's admitted to planning it for months mm-hmm. prior. Um, but it's going to have to be some kind of insanity plea. It's going to have to be some kind of um, similar to what we saw in the Daybell case. But if he's going to plead insanity, he has to show... Um, the problem that he's going to have with that is if he was cognizant of the of of what he was doing enough to understand the difference between right and wrong, mm-hmm. um, and he's been planning it for months, showing that he had the ability to plan and that he had enough uh, sense to uh, come up with this plan and execute it and follow it through. Mm-hmm. Um, and if he's, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of other evidence. It's very difficult to prove uh, death by insanity. There's a there's a show that I listen to. Um, it's another podcast. Um, psychology of a murderer or something like that, or criminal psychology. And this lady, she talks about when people, when there's genuine cases of, of innocence by way of insanity, there is a distinct difference between people that are genuinely mentally disturbed because they generally have no recollection of what happened. And when they're told of what they did, there's this visceral reaction as if they really weren't in their body when they did that. Mm-hmm. And it happens on a very small percentage of those claims and it's, just, it's very distinct. You can't fake insanity and say that <laughs> I didn't understand what I was doing. I didn't know the difference between right and wrong, but I did these things. But, hey, I plead not guilty because I know that that was wrong. It's this circular reasoning that doesn't work. But she <laughs> says medically, from her expert opinion, um, it um, Candace DeLong or something like that is, I think, the lady's name. But she says <laughs> there is a distinct difference in genuine cases of insanity where those pleas have worked where there's been uh, professional diagnoses that went along with, that made sense with what happened. This guy is, is not going to have anything like that. So when the trial commences, I'm not sure. Uh, they haven't planned a trial yet. I'd imagine they're going to have to um, take this to a preliminary hearing or a grand jury uh, before they get there. But I imagine probably in six months we'll have a trial and we'll get to the bottom of it. But it might be like that one case um, we were just talking about that case. What was that guy's name? Scott Christopher Watts. Christopher Watts. When he initially pled not guilty, but then he pled guilty because it was funny with him. They sat him down with the interrogation, and then as they were interrogating, he was denying, denying that they got him to confess because he failed the, the, the lie detector exam. Um, but then he pled not guilty anyway, but then he changed his plea back to guilty. And then after he pled guilty, he tried to vacate his plea and saying um, that he didn't know what he was doing or ineffective assistance of counsel. And then the judge basically told him to go pound sand. Go try that somewhere this will else. Be the same, same thing. Well, if you were on trial for the your freedom for the rest of your life, and they're literally moving to execute you, 
I'd imagine you have nothing better to do for 24 hours of your day. He's going to be in maximum security, I hope, um, confinement where he's going to have 23 hours on lockdown, one hour for, he's going to have nothing but time to go do whatever. And they're going to give him access to the public libraries. So I imagine he's going to figure out what an appeal is. I'd imagine he's going to look up criminal defenses. He's going to look up a whole lot of things and he's going to, probably discuss all of those things with his criminal defense attorneys and they're going to say no you can't do that because that's a stupid argument because of x y and z and then he's going to be like you know what my attorneys are stupid i'm going to represent myself like we saw with um daryl brooks that's why he ended up representing himself he thought the sovereign citizen defense was going to rule the day in his case and up until his sentencing he was still saying that um the state hadn't proven jurisdiction and so or whatever he kept on saying I, I, I don't know, but it's going to be similar in this case. The guy's going to, I'd imagine, it would not surprise me at all if he ended up representing himself. I hope he does. I hope he does. It'll be a, well, I don't know if it'll be a quick trial or not. It'll probably be a couple of weeks, but I just know that there's no, there's, there's not a plea deal for this guy. No. There's not a, there's not an instance where the prosecution is going to be like, you know what? If you plead guilty, uh, we're going to take death penalty off the table. This, there's no chance. This is the one case, if there ever was a case, where there's no negotiating. Um, we're going to see to it that you're executed. And if there was a Pulp Fiction uh, method, then we're going to use the Pulp Fiction me- method. Take it back to the 1400s, uh, death by burning at the stake, or death by, um, I don't know, what are all the medieval tortures that you could think of? You ever been in medieval times? The guillotine? No, that's guillotine? too quick. That's over, that's over <laughs> in like a, an instant. The guillotine, that's the, they, they originated in France. Not if it France. takes a few tries to chop off your head. Oh, if they use a blunt blade or whatever. Yeah, but even so, I mean, there's that. They have this one where you stick them in like an oven and just slowly add coals to the bottom of the fire until he, he burns to death. Um, they have the wheel where they stretch his body out until all four limbs are dislocated and they, they pull his body apart and they cover him honey and leave him in the baking sun in some cages suspended like six feet up in the air. And um, I don't know, they got really vicious on it. And this is not a show about medieval torture history. And so (laughs) I'm just trying to imagine all of the things that I could recall reading about that I would love to see this guy get um, before I ever uh, try to offer him any kind of a criminal defense. So um, in terms of that, if you are in an abusive relationship Mm-hmm. And, and Liana, I know that you deal with this a lot more than most attorneys because you and I, we both practice family law, mm-hmm. but we come in and we see these kinds of cases all the day, all, all the day, all the time. And there are these cases where you have these men, generally insecure men for a multitude of reasons. It could be because they're, they're insecure about their physical appearance. They're, insecure about their intellectual abilities. They're insecure about their station in life. They're insecure because their wife happens to be a corporate executive and they're stuck working in the Amazon warehouse somewhere or some, they just never were able to take off or failed career aspirations or they used to run a business and then they went bankrupt and now he's uh, feeling shitty about himself because it's been a couple of years and he can't get himself back on his feet. There's a million reasons why people become insecure. I think the difference is, I'm not so sure... I'm not so sure if it's different between men and women. I just know that when men become insecure, more often than not, they have the physical ability to 
um, impose themselves on smaller females. And it's just a much more dangerous proposition. When men get insecure, um, it's like, uh, you can't wear this, you can't go out, you can't go with your friends, you can't whatever. Um, and then it's like, you're only going to talk to me and you're, you know, it becomes this controlling thing. And in order to assert dominance because of their insecurities, they feel the need to impose themselves physically because what else do they have? Mm-hmm. They have nothing else. The only way that they could assert their dominance in a definitive way is by physicality. And it appears uh, from what the neighbors were saying about this guy that he was a practitioner of ridicule of his wife, that he would constantly put her down and um, treat her uh, a certain way. And not only that, it wasn't limited to his wife. It was um, it expanded to his children. He would constantly be belittling his children um, and treating them poorly. And we don't have not even probably 90% of the details on that case. I'm not, I'm not sure how much of that's going to be released, but when you have, um, when you're dealing with an individual like that, I take those cases very seriously. Mm-hmm. Like it's not okay that you're, um, being controlled that way. Even if domestic violence hasn't occurred in the tr- traditional sense, you don't have bruises or black eyes or mm-hmm. you haven't been physically violated that way it doesn't mean that it's not going to end up that way or something much worse. There's nothing more dangerous than a scared male that believes that the only way that he could get his point across to a smaller female is through physical violence. And you exacerbate that with his inability to control his own emotions to the point where he's verbally abusive. And now he's in his head and he's giving himself um, all of these affirmations that what he's doing is is justified because of whatever he thinks it is. She talked to his, her mom too long on the phone. She talked to her brother too long. He doesn't agree or she doesn't agree with his particular ideologies and he feels stupid about it. Whatever it is, he gives himself all of these affirmations about why he's justified in doing what he's doing. And the longer that that goes unchecked, the worse that behavior gets until it potentially ends with the death of somebody. And in this case, on the Dowermans. Uh, the death of three young boys who couldn't defend themselves any more than their mom could. And we're all left trying to make sense of it all. And here I am doing a podcast trying to make sense of it all. And I'm, I'm partially, I'm, I'm very conflicted in the fact that I'm even doing this particular subject matter because it's just such a disgusting case to talk about. It, it makes me angry as I sit here uh, to discuss what happened to those young boys and that there's nothing that could ever uh, be done about it. And that, now we're talking about whether or not he has rights. Yeah, he's got rights, but I don't need to be the one to tell him what they are. Is my professional opinion from the tilted lawyer in this case. I don't know. What do you think about all that, Eliana, from your personal experiences? From my personal experience, and I want also to um, clarify, I mean, it happens to the other way. Um, there's also women that are the perpetrators or the controlling uh, part of the relationship. But based on what I've seen, most of the time it's men because they do have also the financial ability to uh, also do, I guess, financial abuse. They're usually the ones that uh, have, uh, are the ones that work, the other uh, party doesn't work. Um, They just tell the other party they're going to take the kids away. The other party doesn't have that much uh, contact with um, other people to verify the information that this person has given them is true or not. 
Um, and I agree. I mean, <laughs> they uh, just get to a point where um, all they can do is just abuse the other person physically. A lot of times I get cases, um, uh, the woman is the client, and although it hasn't reached that point where there's physical violence, the person, the other person, I mean, the, the partner has already done a lot of things that could be considered domestic violence um, because domestic violence is not, is not just physical um, contact. There's also a lot of things um, that could count under the DBPA, yeah, DBPA Act, whatever. Um, but uh, I just like to counsel them and be like, okay, this is not right. You cannot accept this. Be careful. You need to get out of this situation like right away. And if something like this or like that happens again, um, we need to report it. We need to do something about it. And a lot of times women in these situations are just used to it. They have seen it in their family before. They think it's pretty normal. Um, they don't have like somebody out of their circle telling them, hey, this is not right. This is completely unacceptable and you can actually get a restraining order um, because of this behavior. And uh, I just like to point that out uh, to those clients. But usually my experience, and I was thinking, I think since I went solo, I have represented more men than women in domestic violence cases. Um, which I really hadn't thought about it uh, before. What would but you say the percentages? Men I'm sorry? Women. What would you say the percentage is? Like the ones that I have... Uh, men to women. The cases that I've done, maybe like 80% my clients have been male. Yeah, and that's about right. Female. About right. Um, but the ones that I have had that are men... The female is the one put in the restraining order, but the reasoning behind those restraining orders is usually not domestic violence. Like the woman is not the, how can I explain it? It doesn't have to do with physical violence or anything like that. Usually there's a custody uh, purpose behind it, or they just want to discredit the person because they're mad at them, but usually it doesn't have to do a lot with uh, with actual domestic violence. And I think I have had only one case where the woman was actually doing stuff that would have fallen under the domestic violence, but it was a mutual restraining order. It was a very, very toxic relationship. So they were well, both up. <laughs> I'll tell you what, in my whole history of my experience with those kinds of women, there was never an occasion where I felt like I was like in physical danger the way that a woman would feel like as mad as they want to get, you know, and as crazy as they can get most of the time. And I'm not saying it's never like, what if she picks up like a gun or a weapon or something and tries to, I've had cases where one of my clients said that the female broke into his house and was standing over his, in, in the kitchen with a knife threatening to kill herself. Oh, it's like, okay, well, what if that moves into like standing over you and as you sleep mm -hmm. and there's no defense for that, right? So obviously it could escalate, but in your waking hours, most men are not um, intimidated the same way that a woman is. No, and that's definitely. not being like a 
gender specific, but that's just kind of the statistics of it. Mm-hmm. Well, usually what women do that leads them to be accused of domestic violence is more harassment um, and just doing crazy stuff like showing up unannounced whenever there's a significant, uh, another Green significant text messages, text messages um, damaging property because they got mad um, calls, um, making uh, calls to like jobs and people to make them look bad. Um, it's usually that type of situation. Sometimes they get physical, but it's not to a point where I would say that the male was intimidated. He was just uncomfortable. Like, yeah, I don't want this person here trying to hit me. Yeah. But the other way around, yes, it's very scary because usually the men are bigger um, physically. And uh, there's been some sort of like control or physical um, control. And it's it's scary, um, usually when it's the other way around. Kashida, what do you think about all of this, this whole talk about the differences and uh, how men and women are and these kinds of, and, and the way that it could escalate? What do you think of everything we've just been saying from your perspective? I'm curious. I know from my perspective as, as a lawyer, you know, Leanna's the lawyer, you know, it's difficult to realize that, you know, you have, there's lay people out there and they have different perceptions. I'm curious what you think. Or you don't have to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to put you on the spot like that. I'm just curious because we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, how things escalate with men when they're um, insecure, how they can escalate with women, but men are usually not in as much danger. I mean, because we literally just witnessed this, obviously, a start with domestic violence with the Doberman case, and then it escalates to where he's executing three of her sons, and we suspect maybe because he was trying to find a way to hurt the mom as much as he possibly can. And I don't know what's going on with all of that. I can't even imagine or relate to that mindset. But that's what happened in this case. Um, do you Are you aware of cases where women have gotten to such degree where men should fear for their safety in the way that this? Like earlier you were talking about how most serial killers are men. And then I was pointing out all these female serial killers. And you're like, wait a minute. And so... Um, I know that I say that the percentage is like 80 to 20, but I, I really think that's mostly because of the physicality of it all. Yeah. Um, what do you think about all that? Elaborate more. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just this proposition that, you know, most domestic violence is committed by men. What about women that commit domestic violence? Do you think that that is something that gets ignored in general society? Do you think it's something that is improperly dealt with because we're so caught up in gender roles that um, we disbelieve any male that says that they're being violated domestically by another female? I think so. How so? I just feel like the male is a um, more prevalent in, like, women saying, oh... He's being t- stalkerish or so and so. Yeah, well, in the cases that or you jealousy know, involved, I guess jealousy is always the biggest one, right? And it always plays into insecurities, and, and women um, can be just as insecure as men. It just manifests itself much differently with man, with men. Um, well, I don't know. Do you think that? 
I'll ask, since both of you guys are females, would you say that jealousy manifests in women as anger the same way it does with men? Or is it just that they are less able to do anything about it if it's anger and there's less consequences as a result? Hmm. Is this like a food for thought? Am I like, like I'm, I'm, I'm seriously, I'm, I'm really curious because I've seen some angry women in my days. But it's just like, okay, if I'm walking in a parking lot, how tall are you? You're like, what, five, one, five, zero? Four, eleven. Four, well, Jesus. <laughs> so you're four foot eleven, right? When you walk into a parking lot by yourself at night, do you have this passing thought that you're not safe? It just depends um, what kind of environment it is. Okay, let's say that it's a... Uh, um, a it's, it's very sketchy, yes. I'm scared. An unpopulated <laughs> parking lot. And it's dark and the street lights are. Yeah, I'll flickering. go in my car and I'll lock my door immediately. All right. I've never experienced that fear. I've literally never experienced being fearful walking back to my car. I've never felt unsafe. But it's different for women, just that very base thing. Mm-hmm. And so when a woman gets upset, you know, for most of the time with men, they don't have this, oh, well, I'm in danger now. It's most of the time it's like, Oh, what's the matter now? What is wrong? You know, what do I got to do? What did you say? And it becomes like this funny thing, like women are overreacting and men are dealing with it. But in some cases, when men lose their tempers, when they get out of control um, and they start throwing things or hitting things or punching things, when women does it, most of the time it's not that big of a deal. When a man does it, people's lives are in danger. I think that that's the difference in the dynamic. I don't know. I've never heard of a case where a woman... Actually, I have heard of cases where women, because of jealousy, insecurity, or whatever, um, harm a child to get back at the man. There was just a case like a month ago where this lady was uh, on surveillance camera wheeling down in a little shopping cart uh, the body of a seven-year-old that she had just murdered. Um, And she was the child of the guy that she was dating. And then uh, we haven't even talked about that case. I didn't want to talk about that case, but it was a very similar thing. But she did that very specifically to get back at the guy. So it's not like it's, you know, I know that we joke about it, but the the consequences, they all lead to the same place on the extremes. Maybe they're vastly different when you're talking about, you know, um, what's in the middle. But if you go to the standard deviations, you know, the outside cases, the most extreme of cases, they all lead to the same place, which is death, heartache, mm-hmm. ruined lives, shattered lives. And that really is going to be the defining. I mean, I don't know. How does this case get defined by the general public with uh, what we're dealing with? And with this case, I don't know. Like, what's the big takeaway? Like, in the, in the, door, in the, in the Lori Daybell case, it was, wow, religious fanaticism could be really dangerous, you know? And the case involving Letitia Stouch, who was the wife, the second wife, who murdered um, little Gannon. Mm -hmm. Gannon, 12-year-old boy, as he was sitting there in his bed. I don't don't remember if he's 11 or 12. Um, She didn't really have a motive for that. She just lost her shit. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of her rage, murdered a child. And what was the takeaway for that? It's like, 
you know, be careful about who you let watch your kids. The guy was literally gone for three days on military leave, and he comes back, and she's claiming that she was raped, and then uh, somebody kidnapped um, the child, and, you know, come to find out six months later, she was the prime suspect because the evidence pointed towards her. So I don't know what the big takeaway from this case is going to be. We're talking about it because it's in the news, and I've been asked to talk about it. But where are we going with all of this? Like, what are we learning from this? Um, I'm not sure. But I guess my hope is that this podcast and our discussion about it, um, whatever it is that you take from it, we find some way to be unified at the very least um, in acknowledging our grief and the facts of of what actually happened. Because I really can't make any logical sense of it. No. Other than that. We need more information. Well, we're going to get it (laughs) for sure. I mean, this case is maybe a couple of weeks old and we have just basically the the main fact pattern that we've talked about. That's, that's what we know about it, but there's going to be a full on trial about it. I don't see this guy changing his plea. There's no reason for him to do that. Um, There's not going to be a scenario where the uh, DA offers anything less than the death penalty. I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. If you were the DA, are you, are you, are you going to offer them a plea? Probably not. <laughs> would you offer him a plea? No. And if you did, then I imagine that the chief DA would say, no, you're not, you know what? You're off the case. Get out of here. Yeah. You're, you're finished. We're, let me take over. I'm going to take over. Yes, he confessed already. So that's like. Yeah, this case has already become political. There, there's no politics that would allow for the DA to do such a thing. Um, there's no, if he believed that you can obtain justice through uh, the death penalty, um, which I'm not even so sure about. I just know that it makes us feel better to think about it and talk about it. We just had, I, th- I want to say we spent like 30 minutes talking about ways that we would tor- torture this guy <laughs> within the confines of the eighth amendment um, on, on how we would do it with this guy. But you know, this was the case. That was the case. Um, Eliana, I think it's time to wrap up. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been episode 41 of the tilted lawyer podcast. And if you've been listening to us, uh, from the beginning of the show all the way through to the end, thank you so much for listening and being a part of the show. Um, oh, we have, um, I can't pronounce this guy's name, uh, Sunaviv. I'm going to call him Sunaviv. He's uh, one of our big commenters, but he says, I'm 6'3", and I've never been afraid of a woman. To be honest, I haven't been afraid of most men. And you know what? I'm like 5'11", and I concur with this guy. I'm not even 6'3". I'm 5'11". I've never been afraid of a woman. But I fully acknowledge that there are women. So I have a wrestling background. I'm fully aware that there are women out there that can whoop a man's ass um, with with little effort. I know that they're out there. I just haven't encountered one. Um, I, I like to think that I have the power, but I don't. Well, you could think Regardless, that. I mean, you could think 11. that. <laughs> you you can think that all, all you want. My wife thinks the same thing. Sometimes, like she'll get to wrestling around, and then like um, I'll like uh, I'll, I'll do like a move, and then she'll be like, you know what? I'm just gonna play dead. <laughs> she'll she'll just say, I'm I'm just gonna play dead. Like, what's the point? But she'll try. Like she'll try her very hardest, and it just won't. Uh, you know, it's never gonna work. But I agree with this guy. He's a big guy. Um, I'm not as big as this guy, but I've never been in fear of a woman, whether or not. I mean, even if it was like Ronda Rousey, like I feel like she could probably kick my ass, but I feel like I could probably get away if I really wanted to. And I'm I'm probably wrong in that. But 
Um, you know, most men she could probably, I just, you know, it's just different. It's different. It would take something like that. There was this female boxer. They labeled her the female Mike Tyson, the greatest female boxer in the history of female boxing. And they wanted to see, you know what? I bet you, if we put her up against a man, um, I bet you, I bet you she whoops his ass. They put him in a sanctioned boxing match. The first ever of its kind that I'm aware of, it was literally male boxer versus female boxer, and she's the best that there has ever been. And this guy was like maybe 115 pounds, 120 pounds, maybe. She was bigger than him. Um, And just the differences in, she was a way better boxer than he was. Mm -hmm. And he beat the shit out of this lady for five rounds. It was just not even a close match. He He wasn't even an average boxer. He was like a below average journeyman style um I'm, I'm her name is escaping me but they've done this experiment many times men versus women no matter if, if it's equal context there's mm-hmm. there's not a comparison we've had testosterone flowing through our veins from the time that we were prepubescent that has changed our musculature to a sense that you guys cannot compete unless you're going to pump yourself full of steroids and the obvious health uh, defects of that and even then even then it's questionable um, so I'm just saying, um, I concur uh, with uh, Rusnev, and when he says that he's never been afraid of a woman or a man, which is generally true of most men. Now, most men who are not afraid of of other men, um, it's for one of two reasons: either because they know enough uh, to be confident. <laughs> Nessa says, Rondi, Ronda Rousey could beat you up. Don't lie. Yeah, she could. She probably could. But I will fight dirty. How about that? <laughs> so. <laughs> Oh, I would fight Ronda Rousey, but just not with anybody watching, because I don't want to get, I don't want anybody to see me get beat up by a girl. So, but finishing up my point, um, most men that are not afraid of other men, it's either because they're confident because they've been in some martial art, or one, or they've never been in some in a martial art, and they overestimate their abilities because they've never been punched in the face. So they're just. In delusional. either case, and delusional. In either case, most men don't fear other men because they're either overestimating or they're confident in what they could do and they know how to stay out of things. And um, anyway, how do we even get on this topic? It's time to wrap up the show. It's time to go, um, ladies and gentlemen. This has been episode forty-one of the Tilted Lawyer Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on this show. Next week, I don't know what the show is going to be about. Maybe you guys can let me know down in the comments. And for example. This show was born about by your request, and maybe next week. I have some ideas about what I want to talk about, but I'm going to let you guys decide because you guys are the ones um, consuming the content. And Mm -hmm. so we love you all for all of you out there. Make sure that you lock your doors. Make sure that you keep your loved ones close. I'm going to see you guys next week. Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Tilted Lawyer Podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care. Bye-bye.